Navigating the Datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 26 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. Today, we're going to give you the whirlwind tour of the Google Cloud platform, otherwise known as GCP. We can't cover everything, but we're going to take you through a couple different reference architectures and hopefully cover the most exciting features to us. And to help do that, I've invited John Lamb and Bjorn Rose to the podcast. Hey, John, how's it going? I'm doing well, Chris. And uh, Bjorn, how are you? I'm fantastic, and uh, thanks for having me again here. Great, folks. You can hear John and Bjorn's intros and lightning rounds in episodes six and four, respectively. Both are regulars on the Datascape podcast. So let's start by walking through a sample architecture. Let's start with something simple that's probably common to a lot of business users out there. And uh, that to me would be a batch processing pipeline. So Bjorn, why don't you walk us through what that architecture would work, you know, spending time on the GCP related features of what they do and how they would interact. Sure. So from a very high level, first of all, this is something we do a lot is to build these batch pipelines where we take data from various data sources they could already be on google or they could be somewhere on premise or in a data space or in another cloud service or um, social media feeds and then the idea is to take these transform them somehow and present them in an analytical dashboard or in reports uh, what we do when we build these pipelines on gcp we like to take them or divide them into three parts one is the ingestion part where we take the data land them in gcp then we do some transformation on them we might enrich the data we might transform them aggregate it and then we load it into a data warehouse that we can then query with our analytical tools. And no matter how you do this on GCP, the one central thing to store your data and transform it, pick it up from and land it is going to be Google Cloud Storage, which is the central service that stores your data. And then that every other data service that can transform them, read them, land them, reads from. Okay. And so we've covered cloud storage. Tell me about some more of the, gig, uh, the Google tools. Like what would be doing that transformation? Right. So my favorite tool to do this is a product called a service called Google Cloud Dataflow. And that is the, a runner or an implementation of an open source project called Apache Beam that was designed specifically to run or as an SDK to do transformations both on batch and streaming data. If you do stream, uh, batch data, what it does is you write a job, you submit it to a data flow runner, and then you run it. And the nice thing about data flow is it's completely serverless. So you don't have to spin up a cluster first. You don't have to worry about infrastructure. All you do is you write a job. You don't even think about the, the underlying architecture of how to run it. File that off against the data flow cloud service, and it can read data from a number of sources. One of the easiest ones would be to read it from Google Cloud Storage. And then you can filter the data, aggregate it, enrich it, join data from different um, sources together. And then you can either write it back out to Google Cloud Storage for some other service to pick it up, or you could write it to something like BigQuery. That's Google's uh, big data warehouse uh, service to display it in analytical tools like Logger, Tableau, or Google's own uh, data studio. Okay. Does Dataproc have a, have a part to play in, in, this, in this architecture? Absolutely. So Dataproc is the slightly less serverless, but almost serverless um, solution or service that GCP has to offer. And what Dataproc does is it allows you to run, uh, to spin up a cluster on demand and then tear it down again. And you can run Spark, Hive, and other jobs on the Redoop ecosystem on Dataproc. And the really nice thing about Dataproc is that it uh, runs Hadoop, but it doesn't need an HDFS file system. So unlike Hadoop, where your data lives in a cluster, which means you have to run your cluster and keep it up and running, it actually reads the data directly from Google Cloud Storage, which is why Google Cloud Storage is so central to 
any kind of data processing pipeline. So help me understand the differences in the selection process between data flow and data proc. When would I use one versus the other for the transformation? Data proc is the, the number one choice. If you already have transformation jobs that you've written using Spark or using Hive on your existing on-prem or another cloud vendor, so you can just take your jobs and move them to Google Cloud Data Proc and separate the processing from the storage. That's a really nice thing, but you don't have to rewrite your jobs if you just want to take your existing jobs from the Hadoop world and run them on, on the Google Cloud. That's really the number one reason to use data proc. Um, if you are starting from scratch, if you don't have existing jobs, I would recommend to look into Apache Beam and Google Cloud Dataflow, which I think is a much nicer interface to doing transformations. But chances are, if you already have um, big data jobs or Spark jobs, you already have them, you might want to run them on data proc. If you don't, I would certainly look into Cloud Dataflow for that. And there's another reason why we would want to use Cloud Dataflow instead of, uh, instead of data proc. And that's when it comes to streaming jobs, which I think will cover a data point. Okay. Are there any billing considerations that, that you would bring out to the audience? In terms of comparing the two with each, mm -hmm. to each other? Yeah. So both of them under the covers charge you by the minute of um, how much you use. So if you spin up a data proc cluster, you're basically paying for the underlying VMs that they spin up and you pay a tiny premium on top of that. And uh, data flow is very similar in where you basically pay for it. Under the covers, they will still spin up VMs for you and you will pay for them. The nice thing about Dataflow also is that it has an auto-scaling feature where you just specify the type of worker you want to use. So you specify the VM type to use. And then Dataflow will automatically figure out how many of these VMs it needs to run your current job. And it can both scale up and down as needed. Other than that, both of these technologies, you really only keep them running for however long you want your jobs to run. So with Dataflow, you submit a job. And when your batch job is done, it just takes the, the, the infrastructure down again. With data proc, the way you do it, you, you start your data proc cluster, then you submit your job, and then typically you would just um, turn off your data proc cluster and destroy it and just um, recreate it whenever you need it again. So from a payment perspective, you really only pay for however long your jobs are running in either technology. Okay. John, you've been unusually quiet uh, throughout the, the architecture. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, actually, it's, it's, it's worth noting that with data proc, and because it's a managed uh, YARN cluster, you do still have to consider that you will be running the uh, name nodes for the YARN cluster. So that's another advantage that Google kind of plays on. So with Dataflow, you are just paying for the machines that are running to process your data. With the YARN cluster on Dataproc, you have to consider that there's a master node that's going to be running. And if you want HA, it will be, I believe, three master nodes, at least, that will be running. And that's an ongoing cost as long as the cluster is up. So if you say that you want to spin up a cluster of 10 machines, you have to consider that three of those are going to be master nodes that aren't really doing work. So there's a bit of overhead there. Now, in terms of the actual auto-scaling, I do know that Dataproc has been uh, adopting this feature of auto-scaling. So it is still in beta, I believe. So it hasn't had GA, but they are bringing it closer to being more similar to the data flow. But having said that, you definitely get more of that managed uh, serverless approach with data flow because it, you only pay for what you actually use. You don't have that management overhead as well in terms of costs. Right. And that's something I've noticed with the, you know, the Google Cloud strategy versus, say, the Microsoft Azure strategy is Google seems to be a lot more tied to a, a serverless angle, like spin it up, use it, then it goes away and not paying. Whereas I, I don't see the same number or same strategy for serverless data options, at least on the Azure side. Sorry, there's one more interesting thing about the, the cost aspect of Dataproc, and that is, A, like John said, the minimum size of a Dataproc cluster is three nodes. So if you only have very small 
processing needs, you still end up paying for these three nodes. But the other beautiful thing is that you can reserve what's so-called uh, spot instances. So you can reserve these instances that Google can preempt. So if another customer needs these, these computing resources, you, your customers might be shut down. But for the time they're running, they're really, really cheap. And the strategy there is if you have a job that's uh, massively parallel scalable, you might want to run it using three or four permanent nodes and then add as many spot instances as you can get um, and just see if you can process your data as quickly as possible using these spot instances and you end up paying less than if you had the number of uh, permanent instances running. That's a great strategy. That's a great point. I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that. I think that's a very cool GCP feature. So you mentioned Google Cloud Storage. Was there anything else that you wanted to, like, how does it compare? You, you said it's like HDFS. Is there anything else you'd like to add for the audience to better understand what cloud storage, their capabilities are? Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you see this paradigm throughout different Google architectures. And I believe this is kind of onset by, you know, the era of the cloud. Having something like uh, object storage in this term, Google Cloud Storage, and then Amazon, you have S3. This new construct came out where People kind of use this as an intermediary for being able to stage data or stage information or maybe even code in some instances to be that offline storage that you can use for disaster recovery or for static asset you know, delivery of files or whatever. It's a great backend for things like CDNs. So this, this new paradigm is something that we didn't see in the previous era of you know, on-prem because it's expensive to spin up object storage. It's not something that's cheap to have. But when you think of economies of scale of cloud providers, it's something that becomes very feasible from a cost perspective. And then when you start seeing this paradigm taking over in a cloud setting, you start seeing that people start to rely on it a lot more. And for lack of a better explanation, cloud storage and you know Amazon S3 are probably the most serverless services that we use that people don't really consider serverless. You never really think of cloud storage as a serverless service, but it is actual definition of a serverless service because you literally just pay for what you use. If I'm going to use one byte, I'm going to pay for one byte. I'm going to use one gigabyte, I'm going to pay for one gigabyte. It is the quintessential definition of a serverless service. So with this paradigm, seeing that it can be used as that staging zone, also seeing that it can be used as a drop-in replacement for HDFS, it really alleviates a lot of that management work that you used to have on on on-prem environments, and it creates a new way of working in the cloud. Even if you come to dumping data from something like BigQuery or another data store into cloud storage, it's cheap, it's resilient, it's redundant, it's available. So why not use it? Right, right. We also end up using it, even if it is to just duplicate your data. So we rarely display or report or run SQL against, against cloud storage. That's what BigQuery is for. But usually we still keep all the raw data or the data we load into BigQuery in cloud storage and it allows us to reprocess the data or also consume with something else. Like what if we need to do machine learning data? That's another great use case for having the data both in BigQuery for your reporting and for your analytics, but also just keep the same data before you load into BigQuery on Google Cloud Storage, because you might want to reprocess your data later. If you change your mind about your ETL process, if you want to reprocess it, it's much easier to just throw away your BigQuery tables and reprocess them from the stage cloud storage than it is to fix up the data in BigQuery and just fix things later if you change your mind about transformations. Well, that's an important strategic difference. That's a good one. And I really feel like we glossed over BigQuery. Obviously, it's a querying tool. The language is SQL. How close is it to you know the SQL you're using in Oracle or SQL Server these days? 
I find the SQL to be very similar. If you use a proper relational database, they still have some more features when it comes to things like windowing functions and using your own custom functions and procedures. It has some more features there, but you get by with a lot of the um, stuff that you can do in BigQuery. It's, it's a bit simpler, so you, you don't have that much control and knobs to turn. And so I'm coming from an Oracle background and uh, going from having a million variables to tune to having very few things to do is both scary and liberating. Gotcha. But you end up being able to do a lot of fantastic things. And the way it works is there's two things that are that are a bit different in BigQuery than they are in, in relational databases like, like Oracle or SQL Server. One is everything you store is, even though you talk to tables and you look at rows, it's actually a columnar database. So everything is basically stored in columns. And that comes back when you look, think about how you query data and how much data you need to read and process, because you're always reading whole columns. You're not really reading reading rows, but you're being presented rows, but the, under the covers, it's always reading columns. Um, that's one of the things, and it's it's quite simple. So you can't do things like create indexes. You have limited choice of how you partition and chart your data, but the few options you have, you can do build very, very powerful data models. And then what it does for you is it just auto scales. You don't spin up a database and you have a finite amount of resources. Whatever query you write, BigQuery will determine how much data needs to scan, how much workers it needs to distribute this work to. And you can scan a lot of data very, very quickly and get results back very, very fast. Okay, cool. So I think we've done a good job of talking about batch processing. Let's shift gears to something a little more modern and cool, like stream processing. So if you were to walk us through using GCP components to build a stream processing pipeline, what are some of the Google features and tools that you would use for that one? Sure. So when you talk about stream processing, there's really almost no way around uh, Google Cloud Pops Up, which is their message distribution service. And it, that's one of the most simple but yet most awesome services that they have. It's really simple in that really all it does is you create a topic and then you push messages, publish messages into it. You write them into it. You create a subscription and you read the messages from the topic that your subscription is, is reading. That's really all it does doesn't really do much more than that. But the cool thing is it's globally scalable, so you can actually write messages into PubSub from any of Google's regions and from any of the data centers and then subscribe to them anywhere else. So that's very, very cool to have a global service like that. And it's simple, it's reliable, and it's built by the volume of messages you put in there, which is usually, unless you're processing huge and huge amounts of data, it's usually very, very cheap. It ends up being almost nothing. There's one feature that's new in, in, in beta there, and that's um, the concept of creating snapshots and being able to rewind your subscription to an earlier state. And that's especially useful when you're debugging code. We can talk about this in a little bit. So PubSub is the is the one component where data gets streamed into, and that's it could be a, that could be either your application or it could be code that pushes it in there. And then the typical way to process it is again is using Dataflow. And Dataflow was built from the from the ground up to be handling streaming data. So everything that's special about unbounded data sets like windows, watermarks, triggers, all of these things that you deal with when you deal with unbounded data sets, they were built around that. So it handles it very well. And other than that, the code you write for a batch pipeline or a streaming pipeline in Dataflow are very, very similar. So you can easily reuse a lot of your functions, a lot of your, your code and logic. And then from Dataflow, you can write to anything that Google has or Google presents. So you can write that into BigQuery, but you can also write it, or you can write it in parallel. You can write the data back to Google Cloud Storage, which is one thing that, that again, I would recommend. I would recommend to not only write the data to BigQuery, but also write it back to Cloud Storage. And then you can run your batch price or pipeline against it later if you need to reprocess data. Right. So this is just for the audience. This is a, a typical use case would be like an IoT play. So you've got a sensor. Uh, reading, you know, your hydro consumption at your meter or a sensor in a fridge in a doctor's office, you know, 
monitoring the temperature of, for the vaccines and things like that. So it's the data is coming from probably some device somewhere and then and then moving it in at a, at a high rate, right? Yep, yep, very much so. Is there anything else you'd like to add uh, to uh, or add on this architecture? I think it's interesting to talk a bit about, this is the base architecture for a streaming processing pipeline on GCP, but then it, it starts becoming interesting when you consider where is this data actually coming from? What kind of data am I actually working with? And I know as much as Bjorn is uh, interested in the processing part of streaming data pipelines and real-time data pipelines, given I'm more on the infrastructure side, I'm a lot more interested in the data sources. So where can this data come from? What kind of data are we usually looking at? Now, some common use cases, for example, is having uh, events coming from an application server, which is running on a VM and GCE. Or it could even be events coming from uh, pods running on Kubernetes. Now, an interesting thing is that Kubernetes does work in that sense uh, out of the box when it comes to Google's managed logging system, which we can touch on later, uh, which is called Stackdriver. But the nice thing is when you take that and then you couple it with what Bjorn was talking about, you're going to be feeding these events into a transport layer, which will be PubSub. So we're back to this construct of feed everything into PubSub. PubSub will be that asynchronous messaging service. And then Dataflow starts pulling this data out of PubSub in real time or at least near real time, and processing it as needed, and then putting it into something like BigQuery, and then putting it into something like uh, Bigtable, for example, if it's time series data. And the interesting thing about it, so you're mentioning IoT, I've seen a few different architectures that leverage, it, whether it's machine learning or some kind of uh, analytical processing in the back end. So once that data is presented in a SQL format, such as BigQuery, you can run a machine learning algorithm that will keep analyzing it and then giving feedback to some other reporting dashboard to say that, oh, we might have an issue here. There's a potential risk in one of our sites because this sensor started giving us very weird erratic readings. So it, it really is interesting to see the real life applications of this. And you know, even though we're saying that you know this data will be feeding in, then you hit tops of data flow, as amazing as data flow is, it's not always the only way to do things. And this is the nice thing about GCP. And Bjorn and I had discussed this a couple of times. Nothing on GCP works on its own per se. Uh, you shouldn't think of it as a tool. You should think of it as building blocks. So you're always looking to build different platforms. You're always looking to build a pipeline that will consist of different services working together. So let's say you're not comfortable with Dataflow or you don't want to go and invest that much time in learning how to write Spark or something like that, or your load really isn't that heavy. You can still write processing jobs in good old Python on App Engine, for example. You can write quick cloud functions if they're very lightweight processes that need to be done. You can simply just write a cloud function. It will spin up whenever a PubSub topic comes in and then just write that output to maybe BigQuery or Bigtable or cloud storage or what have you. Or maybe even something like Firebase if you want to create some kind of a real-time dashboard. So it, there's there's a lot to build around this construct. And this is what makes it so powerful, having that PubSub data flow or PubSub processing BigQuery. Uh, so then another interesting thing, and I don't think we touched on this yet, and this is a question that we tend to be asked a lot, how do I secure my platform? How do I make sure that services are able to speak to each other in a secure way? Because one thing that uh, Bjorn actually told me a couple of times is that it just works. And it's true, it does. On Google Cloud, it does. Now, that's not necessarily always a good thing, because sometimes you need to start thinking about well, I want to I wanna buckle down my services. I don't want Dataflow to be able to talk to pretty much anything. I want to assign it specific roles, specific scopes. And this is where Google's IAM comes in and the concept of service accounts. 
So what a service account is, it's uh, you can consider it a virtual identity for a service. So you can spin up a data prop cluster and assign those VMs a specific service account. By assigning that service account, you just created an identity for all those servers. And then using that identity, you can start applying ACLs to a Google Cloud Storage bucket or Google Cloud Storage objects. Uh, let's say you don't want to be able to write to a certain bucket because this is immutable data that's raw data that you don't want to ever change. You can do that and then create another bucket that allows it to write to. And that way you, you kind of buckle down that concept of I'm not altering my raw data. I'm keeping it safe and consistent with what it, how it actually came in at first. And then being able to write all the process data in another place on another location. So this idea of service accounts in Google is extremely powerful because it's also the underlying feature of how all the services actually communicate, which is all through APIs. So when you look at IAM and service accounts integrated with APIs and how APIs rely fully on these service accounts, for authentication and authorization between services, you start to realize that, yes, it does work out of the box, but I also have that immense flexibility to be able to control who gets to talk to what. So you can actually not lock down data flow to only be able to read messages from a PubSub topic and not give it access to any Google Cloud storage. That way, someone can't run some ad hoc processing pipeline that might ruin something in your pipeline in production, for example. So it really is this very flexible way yet secure way to make sure that your whole architecture is always buckled down and that you get to have a real sense of governance, whether it's data governance or operational governance on how things are performed within your environment. Okay, and I'm glad that you brought up security. The one thing that I wanted to ask, is there any way bridging uh, security between on-prem and into the Google Cloud is there any sort of way to do that? Whether can it can it um, you know talk to Active Directory or LDAP or something like? Is there how how does one authorize across the two? Yeah, sure. So uh, Google has an IAM hierarchy under the hood. There's two main services: it's Google Cloud Identity and then uh, G Suite. Now, in and of themselves, they both provide a directory service where you have users and then users can be assigned different roles and rights and privileges and be assigned to different groups. At the basis, you have Google Cloud Identity and you have G Suite. Now, G Suite, you could say, is sort of built on top of Cloud Identity because Cloud Identity is the core user directory service that is a tree of users and groups and company assets. And then G Suite is, takes, builds on top of that and provides you with access to things like Gmail and Google Docs and all that stuff. So if we concentrate just on cloud identity, Google allows you to synchronize with uh, external sources such as Active Directory. So if you're a Microsoft shop and you have your Active Directory and it's been built and planned and controlled for so many years and someone's sitting there and managing it, you don't have to throw that away. You can take it, synchronize everything that's in it into Google Cloud Identity, and then start assigning specific roles based on that hierarchy that you've already built and designed and planned for the past God knows how many years. And that also works in the other direction, where um, just external SaaS providers or services that have nothing to do with Google might federate their authentication to G Suite or to, to Google. So when you log in there with your Google credentials, you can also use that to basically connect and authenticate with these services using the same Google directory structure and authenticate these services. Um, to me, the really beautiful thing is at the core of what John said is, is that you separate the whole issue of authentication from the inside of whatever machines or VMs or services you're running. So you never really deal with passwords inside of your, your VMs or if you spin up a VM, you don't have to configure a password, you just have to configure your service account to be able to do whatever it is that you need to do. So if I need to 
standard VM and talk to PubSub because my I write a program that publishes events. As long as the service account that owns the VM is allowed to do that, I'm allowed to do that. So I don't have to deal with this authentication issue and passwords and all of that inside of my VM. And it's just separate from my code. And that's something I really, really like. It also gives control to somebody else to audit who talks to what and where are permissions granted and where aren't they. I think the only exception to that, and yes, that is very true across the board, there is just one slight exception. And so, Chris, you were asking about being able to access these services from on-prem, for example, or even from your laptop. Um, you can use a service account in that sense as well, except the pattern is a little different. So when you assign a service account to a Compute Engine VM, it picks up the credentials automatically. It's all within the Google backend, which is really elegant. And everything's ready out of the box. The VM is authorized and authenticated with that service account. But when you start talking about, okay, I want to create a service account for a service that's running on a server in my data center that needs to push data to cloud storage. So you still need to provide that authentication. And then what you do is you create a service account, but then you have to generate something called an API key. And then what that would do, since you don't have the underlying infrastructure from Google in your on-prem, you would use that API key to authenticate that service, whatever it may be. And the only, only issue that I've seen or the only case on Google Cloud where you still need to use an API key is within a Kubernetes uh, container or a Docker container because there's that level of abstraction that disconnects the container from the underlying VM. So the elegant thing about it is that Kubernetes has a construct called secrets, which is a very safe way to pass this kind of information to a Kubernetes pod without having to put things in your code. So instead of having to store this API key in your code, you store it as a, a hashed secret within Kubernetes that only it can then present to that specific pod, and then it will be able to act just like a VM would and integrate with all the other services. So Cloud SQL, the way it works, is that it kind of follows this construct. I almost want to say that. Yeah, Cloud SQL is a cool thing. Cloud SQL is, is interesting because... When you first look at it as, a, as someone with a database administration background, and you realize that, wait, I just spun up a database and they assigned it a public IP, that's hearsay. That, like, who does that? But then you realize after you do some reading and you actually look at the way Google sets up their security model, they abstract network security from actual security. And this, this goes back to the idea of the service account. So one of the ways that they say that you should be connecting to your Cloud SQL instances isn't through a direct connection through ODBC or JDBC, but to actually use something called the Cloud SQL proxy. And the beauty of the Cloud SQL proxy is that it can authenticate itself through a service account. So you create this, this paradigm where it's like, you don't longer have the security at the network layer. You've abstracted the security to a security layer that's independent of the infrastructure. So whether I'm running it in a Kubernetes pod or I'm running it on a VM, I never actually connect to the Cloud SQL instance directly. I go through this Cloud SQL proxy, and this Cloud SQL proxy is able to authenticate my identity through the service account that's assigned. I think it's a very elegant solution. It's just some people find it a little difficult to accept because of that whole public IP uh, issue. Right. Well, I can picture myself having to discuss this with an auditor, a team of auditors who are not all that technical, but they do understand public IP and that would be a key word that they're looking for to freak out on you on. So I could, I could see how that could be very frustrating. Google is often accused of not understanding the enterprise. How auditable is security on GCP? It's actually quite transparent. And this is, uh, this is something that Google provides you pretty much out of the box. 
they have an audit trail that is enabled on every project without you having to even enable it. Like if you go into your Google Cloud Console, there's a tab on the top left that says activity. And if you go into that, you can actually see all the events that happened in the Cloud Console in terms of spinning up services, tearing down services, changing configurations. So you actually have audit trailing enabled out of the box. And you can sit there and filter it and go through timestamps and say that I want to see what happened for this service during this time window. It's, it's actually very interesting, the level of insight that you get out of the box without having to actually set anything up. I know on some other providers, you actually have to go and set up the different services and to make sure that your trail logs are actually being stored somewhere and they're available when in Google, you don't. Very cool. It goes back to every interaction being an API call. So every interaction between two Google services is an API call. And every one of these API calls is by default tracked, and you can get information about them so you can find out who, what talked to what other service. Excellent. Which also, which also makes it extremely important, and this is a point I always stress to every client I ever work with, is be very diligent in how you create and assign service accounts because they will give you so much insight into your actual infrastructure. Because if you just use the default account, you have no idea which VM is talking to which service because they all have this one default identity. And that goes back to the concept of a service account being an identity. Right. And that's a good point because the one thing that frightens me about serverless, regardless of the platform, is all of these people writing all these functions that are triggered by events or whatnot and moving around, moving on, what and get these big bills coming in. And nobody really knowing, you know, who wrote what, what it's for, why it's running and firing and stuff. So um, I think that there that is another opportunity to help to help distinguish those calls is using those the server the service accounts that, that you mentioned. One of the things that uh, impressed me the most about not the most but very really impressed me with about Google's approach is uh, it was really easy to turn off all billing. It was just really easy. Other cloud vendors, I keep getting these phantom bills, even though I have nothing. I've destroyed everything and I'm still getting bills for, sometimes they're trivial, they're like $2, but sometimes they're 30. I was actually getting billed by GCP and I went into just billing and just one click, disable all billing, and I stopped getting uh, the bills. And I I really appreciated uh, their approach and how easy they, they managed for me. You did mention something else, Stackdriver, earlier. Let's go into that. Yeah, so Stackdriver is Google's uh, logging infrastructure. Going back to the concept of things being available out of the box, uh, Google innately collects logs from different instances throughout your infrastructure or throughout your environment in a Google Cloud project. Uh, Now, you don't necessarily get a certain level of granularity until you actually start going to you know, using the premium features, which are going to be discarded soon because they're changing their pricing model for that. So soon you're actually going to have full premium stack driver features available out of the box as well. And you only pay for what you use. Yeah, can't wait till it actually happens. Because cost was an issue. You had to pay a certain amount per resource that you use and enable that ahead of time. So it's definitely going to streamline the process. And it will also enable you in terms of having that access to all that information. So you can start collecting granular logging data from your application servers. And then you can collect that in Stackdriver and start creating uh, alerts and monitoring. And so think of it as very similar to an Elk stack, but it's fully managed. It's a fully serverless service that you don't have to set anything up for, except maybe like, you know, assigning specific events or monitor certain events and send alerts and where to actually send them to. And then you can integrate to other services. You can send an API call to, let's say, a pager duty, for example, that can then take care of you know, alerting your SRE staff when something goes wrong. 
And you can you also have the freedom to sit there and use your own. So let's say you have your own custom log structure. You're not using the, the default Apache log structure. You can edit the configuration of the Google Cloud Fluentd uh, client so that it can adapt to your uh, log structure and then parse it accordingly. And just like Logstash would do with you know uh, parsing logs in an Elk stack, Fluentd and Stackdriver would do parsing your logs from your VMs and storing them in Stackdriver, as well as giving you access to VM resources and VM performance. So it really is a very powerful platform. I think it was just a little cost prohibitive in the past. So people always thought twice about it. But now that it's going to be pay as you go and you have the freedom to use it or stop it whenever you want, might make it a little easier and more streamlined to adopt. So I think we've done a, a good job of walking through some reference architectures. As you guys work with the platform, what's missing? I have I have two things that I would love to see as native Google services. One has to do with how you schedule jobs. So when you, when you think about batch pipelines, we have these things that need to run periodically. And it's easy enough to write a serverless job that executes and that can process your data. But how do you trigger this? How do you run this every five minutes or 10 minutes? And I think the way how Google intends this to be is to use um, App Engine and App Engine cron service which is, it seems awkward to set that up only to run something in specific intervals. And it's also not that, well, I guess it's flexible. It's not that easy to set up. I would love to see an orchestration tool like Airflow to be offered as a native cloud service in some way so that I can do my scheduling orchestration of all these different, mostly serverless features from one of these platforms or from something like Airflow. Okay, makes sense. How about you, John? Just to touch on that point, historically, that was the way to set up an app engine and cron it until to run every like six hours, for example. But Google actually is rolling out a native service called Cloud Composer, which is going to be part of the Dataprop suite, which is actually a managed Airflow service. So you will be getting a managed Airflow service running on GCP to to orchestrate you know, data pipelines throughout, being able to spin up clusters, tear them down, time them, write your DAGs. It's really, really interesting. For me, I think one of the biggest issues that I face a lot is keeping up to date with what's in beta, what's not, and just having that level, uh, I wouldn't call it a maturity. Like Google Cloud has become a very mature platform, but sometimes your options are limited. So for example, I love Cloud Endpoint being an API gateway, and it's a very elegant solution, but it doesn't integrate with Cloud Functions, for example. And that's kind of a gotcha that when you're halfway down the road, you're like, wait a second, what? Because you would think that. So there is a lot of research you have to do up front before picking specific tools. And just that, that extra level of compatibility could really go a really far away. This is one I was bit by uh, most recently because I was porting over a serverless uh, pipeline from AWS to GCP just to see how the constructs would be different. And then I got to the sticking point where I couldn't add that level of security in front of cloud functions using endpoints, and I would have to revert to something like Apogee, for example. So that level of getting better integration between services, even though they are very good today, just those gotchas that you would expect to be there, I just wish that they would actually be there. Okay, good one. And as always, I like to give our listeners advice on where they can learn and adopt the technology. Obviously, with any of the cloud providers, the standing advice that we've been giving is, get out there and start playing with it. But what, uh, aside from that, what uh, resources would you, would either of you recommend to our listeners? Google has a certification program for Google Cloud Platform Certified Data Engineers. And if you look at the course syllabus for that and the material that they need to, that you need to cover to pass that exam, 
you will learn about all of the technologies we covered today and some more. They have a Coursera course and they have some other resources that you can that you can have a look at. There's also a really good book. I think it's called Data Science on the Google Cloud Platform. It's another really good book that I that I really enjoyed reading because they walk you through a through a case example of I think the end goal is to build a machine learning model for predicting if your flight is going to be delayed or if your flight is delayed if you will make your next flight. So, and they walk you through using most of the services again that we covered today. So those will be my two resources. One is the exam preparation work and the Coursera course, and the other one will be the, the book. Okay, how about you, John? Anything to add? I would say uh, definitely the documentation. The documentation has come a long way and is quite rich, especially that they do provide lots of examples. So even if you just wanna test something out, a lot of times during throughout the Google Cloud uh, documentation, you'll see that there are snippets of code in different languages that you can just copy and paste to make sure things work. There's also samples. So that's a very good way to get a hands-on feel very quickly and very cheap, but pretty much free. And also the courses, the courses are great. I've seen some of the Coursera ones. I'm also a big fan of Udemy and I've used it in the past. Uh, they have some good courses there as well. But any course that will walk you through services, not just explaining them, but also giving you examples and letting you actually work with the code to integrate different services. So you can start getting an idea of how do things fit together, going back to the concept of building blocks versus just tools. And then I think that's a very good way to start on Google Cloud Platform. Okay, good. Good advice as always. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Now, what I will add is if you want to keep up to date on the Google Cloud Platform as well as all the other cloud platforms, I recommend that you consider checking out the Cloudscape podcast, which is a podcast I produce and host in addition to this one. John is a regular on that podcast, and he brings us the GCP updates each month. The biggest compliment you can give us is by helping others to find us, and you can do that by telling a friend or writing a short, honest review on iTunes. And as always, we love your feedback, and you can send us feedback at datascapepodcast at gmail.com or directly to me at presley at pythian.com. Have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape. 